listeners, my name is Veronica Kim, and I will be your new host for the Unity in Christ program. I am very excited to be sharing God's words, growing in faith with all of you. I hope that all of you can pray for me so that God gives me the strength and wisdom to do His work through this program. There will be a change to the Unity in Christ program come October. The Lord is my shepherd that ran 13 weeks long will come to an end and we will start a new segment to the program. This program will dig deeply into Jesus' sermon, the sermon that Jesus gave to us on the mountain. Yes, it is the Sermon on the Mount. We will study each verse of the Sermon on the Mount together and study into their meaning. Please stay tuned for this new program. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries waits for your participation for a listener's survey. Your opinion is highly valued. All gathered information will be for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries. It will go towards our ministry's efforts to share the gospel. You may participate by completing the questionnaire survey delivered to your address or go online at www.heartandsoul.org. Our return address for the paper survey is P.O. Box 5459 Glendale, Arizona 85312. The survey ends on October 31st. We wait for your participation and thank you for your input. The way that the world evaluates a man can be different from the way God evaluates a man. David Livingstone, whose life inspired missionaries to go to Africa, was one such example. David, who was studying to become a physician, had an older brother who already was one. When David said that he received a calling from God to go to the jungles of Africa as a missionary, John, his older brother, was shocked. John told David, If you do as you wish, your life will be buried and forgotten among those barbarians in the jungle, while I become the most famous doctor in Scotland. The world may judge that David was reckless to have abandoned his studies to become a physician, where he would have received a lot of respect from others. However, God judges differently. David's decision to throw away all these things and follow God's prompting sets him on the path for entering through the narrow gate to finish the task that God had set before him and to be a truly victorious man of God. We will share more about David Livingstone, the pioneer of missions to Africa after this first song. I can't even walk a straight line And every time you look at me I'm spinning like an autumn leaf Bound to hit bottom sometime Where would I be without someone to save me? Someone who won't let me fall Every single beat of my heart 
breaks than I'd ever care to confess Oh, but you're the one who looks at me and sees what I was meant to be More than just a beautiful mess Oh, and where would I be without someone to save me? Someone who won't let me Livingstone was born in Scotland in 1813 to a poor working-class family. His father worked at a cotton mill, and David started working alongside his father when he was only 10 years old. People in England were fired up for the gospel of Jesus Christ in the late 18th and early 19th century, and there were many missionary organizations that were established across the country. David heard the gospel of Jesus and accepted him as his Lord while in his teens. Then he heard from some missionaries that there was a need for medical missionaries in China, and he decided to become one. He started his studies in medicine while he continued to work at the cotton mill. While being kept busy with work and medical training, he also started attending the University of Glasgow for theology lectures and to learn Greek and Latin. When he was 27, in 1840, he finished his theological and medical training and prepared to go to China as a missionary. However, there was a conflict between China and England with the First Opium War and the London Missionary Society, where David continued his theological training, decided not to send missionaries to China. Livingstone was dismayed to hear of the Society's decision, but during this time, he met Robert Moffat who was a missionary in Africa. Livingstone's passion for missionary work in China switched to Africa, and soon he left for South Africa. 
After arriving in southern Africa in 1841, Livingstone stayed in a village to start his missionary work and to study the native culture. His journey began with the hope that there would be a flourishing village with a large population in Africa just like in England. Four years later, in 1845, the 32-year-old Livingstone married, and for seven more years he traveled to different places around the region, preaching the good news. But seeing time and again that there was nothing more than the small villages and the jungle, and realizing that each of the tribes had their own religion, David Livingstone became increasingly disappointed. His discouragement grew when he saw other missionaries, living separate from the natives, lose heart from their lack of converting them, while struggling with the discord that had set in between them. David became frustrated with himself as well, as he could only see one convert after 12 years of work. Amidst such desperate situations, Livingstone set out to find a quick route for travel across the African continent. He believed that the gospel would spread quickly if an easier passage through Africa was made for more European missionaries to travel and settle there. To accomplish this in a timely manner, he sent his wife and children back to England. After his family left, he traveled about 4,000 miles through Africa over four years, traveling the continent and continuing his missionary work. During his journey, he suffered through malaria. He had also freed hundreds of slaves after seeing some Portuguese men dealing in the slave trade. This incident with the Portuguese caused a greater conflict between Portugal and England, and the British government gave Livingstone orders to stop his journey and return to England. Back in England, Livingstone did not give up and continued to prepare for his next journey. In 1866, when he was 53, by the request of the Royal Geographical Society, he was given another opportunity to return to Africa. His missionary work during the next seven years continued without any signs of stopping. However, in 1873, being weakened due to an illness in such a harsh environment, Livingstone's servant found him dead, next to his bed in prayer.
Coming up next is sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Jesus, God the Son, Part 1, based on Hebrews chapter 1. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Well, we have seen how the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is better, better than so many things that the Old Covenant had to offer. Jesus is better because he's God's final word. He's better in this new covenant because the Old Covenant was great. Angels ministered it to Moses. God says, I myself, God, have ministered the new covenant to you. Didn't use a mediator this time. I used my son and he is God. And this is the argument of chapter 1, that Jesus is actually God the Son, not just the Son of God, because that can be misunderstood. He is the Son of God. Don't misunderstand me. But we understand the Son of God to mean that he is God the Son. The Son of God was a messianic term referring to the one, the Messiah, who would come from God. And, and he is divine. He is not a created being. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us. And that man in the Greek has spoken to us what? Once and for all, in or by or through his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, that's Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That was because the work was finished, right? And only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. There was a place called the mercy seat covering the Ark of the Covenant. And that's the only place that you could possibly have sat down. Jesus sat down. We looked at that at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So Jesus is better than the angels. He is not an angel. He is not Michael the archangel. He is not Gabriel the angel. He is not an angel. He is much better than they, as he has a, more, a better name than they do. And, and this word better is a key word in the book of Hebrews. Here you see in verse 4. And now he begins the argument. He says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now he's quoting from Psalm 2 verse 7, whom uh, Peter says was, that was authored by David. You are my son, today I've begotten you. I think it would be fun to look at that psalm. Let's go back to Psalm 2. It's a messianic psalm. As you read through the psalms, every time you start reading a new time, you, the very second thing you read about is the reign of the Messiah. Psalm 2 Speaking of the Messiah, says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Mashiach, his Messiah, or his anointed one. 
And this is what the wicked are saying. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. They're talking about the Lord Yahweh and His Messiah. And God's response to people's rebellion is that He what? The Lord sits in heaven and and laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. God says, you wicked, especially speaking of the wicked after the, the millennial reign of Christ, who will come against the new Jerusalem, and God will destroy them with fire, he's saying, look, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, thou art my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. God has given to Jesus, the Lord, um, who has said, Today I have gotten thee, you are my son. He says, I'll give you all the nations as your inheritance to the very ends of the earth. You will break them. The Messiah will break the nations with the rod of iron. You will shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, you better show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest He become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Verse 12 actually says you embrace, kiss the Son. Do honor to Him. And so, from this Messianic psalm, and there are many of them in the book of Psalms and many Messianic passages in the Old Testament, the writer of Hebrews is taking one, beginning his uh, study on Jesus being better than the angels, using Psalm 2, and he says, To which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? So he's saying Jesus is equal with God. He's not an angel. And this begottenness, we have to understand, is not... Uh, it's not speaking so much of Jesus being born in human form. The idea of an only begotten is uh, being in a primary role. Jesus is the one who is publicly declared to be the Son, the righteous one. And again, he says, quoting 2 Samuel 7:14, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Verse 6. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and ministers a flame of fire. Now you probably see in your Bible that many of these portions that are being quoted are in maybe capital letters. And that's because it's quoting from the Old Testament precise passages like we just quoted 2 Samuel 7 14 and then in verse 6 he quotes Deuteronomy 32 verse 43 and then he quotes Psalm 104 4 and he so he's just kind of going through speaking from scriptures that he has memorized as he is giving this sermon on the superiority of Jesus Christ and he begins right off by saying look 
I know you think a lot about angels. I know you think that they're special, but Jesus isn't a created being. You say, yeah, but doesn't it say that he is the uh, firstborn into the world? Verse 6. Firstborn. What does that mean? Sometimes you have these folks who come door to door. They have little briefcases with them. And they'll say, well, Jesus isn't equal with God. He's the firstborn of all God's creation, but he's not God. Well, the term firstborn means one, in, it's any Jew understood this. They understood that this is speaking of a position of honor and dignity. The firstborn son always had a double portion of inheritance. The firstborn son was the one who was, um, had a place of leadership and honor among the tribe or the family. And so this is a position again, a place of honor. And this is what he's saying about Jesus I give everything to him. He's the one who deserves all the honor in the family, so to speak. So when again he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. The angels, quoting from Psalm 104, you can read the whole psalm yourself. But it, it's speaking about the power of God in nature and, and how winds work. Sometimes they work very calmly. Sometimes they work powerfully and dramatically and they can cause great destruction. And so the Lord says, you know, the angels work kind of like that. They're unseen and yet uh, their effects are very visible. And he goes, continues to say, but of the sun, verse 8, he says, your throne, O God, is what? Forever and ever. And the righteous scepter of, is the scepter of his kingdom. In Psalm 45, verse 6, the Messiah is referred to as God. Your throne, O God. Because we know he's speaking that way because the author of Hebrews says, but of the Son he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. So he's calling the Son, he's calling the Messiah, God. I always think this is a great passage. People try to get out of it that don't believe in the deity of Christ. But it's as plain as day, I think. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. And thou ha you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Uh, verse 9 could be calling Jesus God again. Therefore, God, Jesus, your God. It could be in the vocative sense here or it could just be, um, he's saying, therefore, God, your God has anointed you with joy among, uh, above all your companions. The, the whole idea, though, we know from the first verse uh, 8 is that Jesus is God. He's saying Jesus is God. That's very clear. And verse 10 you, O Lord, in the beginning did lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. He's still saying this about the sun. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all become old as a garment, and as a mantle you will roll them up, and as a garment they will be changed. He's saying all the universe is someday going to be rolled up like they used to roll up a scroll. You ever see these old window shades that roll up? Usually they roll up when you don't want them to, right? Yeah. And won't roll up when you want them to. 
But God says someday the whole universe is just going to roll up. And it's going to be gone. He says he's going he's to get rid of the, the universe as we know it like an old garment, like an old donated thing to goodwill. He says it's not going to be anymore. But Jesus remains. But you are the same. And your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for the, your feet? Are they not, that's the angels, all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? You have to understand this whole passage from verses 5 through 13 is talking about the attributes of Jesus Christ. How he is so much better than the angels. He is equal with God. He is worthy of worship. He is God himself. He's the creator. He is the ruler. Sit at my right hand. Sit at this place of honor, at my throne. And so, this is, this is the argument of chapter 1. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Look at Isaiah 41, verse 4. Isaiah, we're going to do a little Bible study going to go running through the scripture some. Isaiah 41 verse 4. You might want to take some notes here. Because when those folks do come to the door or you bump into that person that says, oh no, we don't believe that Jesus is God. And there are many different um, kind of branches of that idea. You want to be ready. You don't ever want to be deceived. Look at this Tonight is kind of a vaccination against that belief. All right? Isaiah 41, verse 4. We're kind of stepping in in the midst of a thought, but we can do that, I think, at this point. Who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am He. This is very important because God is saying here through the prophet Isaiah, I'm the first and I'm the last. You want to understand that that's one of the titles that God takes to himself. Do you see in verse 4, I the Lord, verse 4b, I the Lord am the first and with the last I am he. These I am's are kind of important. Who's going to say I am in the gospel of John a whole lot? Jesus, right? I'm the door, I'm the way, I am that I am, I, I am um, he, I'm the bread of life. He says this so many times throughout the Gospel of John because he's tying into Exodus chapter 2 where God reveals himself to Israel when Moses says, who will I say that's sending me? What's your name? And God says, this is the name that you'll know me throughout all your generations. He doesn't say my name is Jehovah. He says my name is I am that I am. That's who you'll say has sent you. So that's the name that God reveals himself to Israel. I'm the I am. So later in John, when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, the he isn't in the Greek. He just says, before Abraham was, I am. The Jews took up stones to stone him. And you know the reason why? They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. They understood what Jehovah's Witnesses don't understand. And others who don't believe in the deity of Christ don't understand. They understood Jesus claiming to be God. And they were going to stone him for that. He says, you know, that's who I am. I existed before he did. And they're saying, you're not, even, you're not even 40 years old. And you say, you're older than Abraham? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> they got the point. 
I, the Lord, the word Lord, you see it's capital letters, L-O-R-D. Whenever you see the capital letters in the translation, L-O-R-D, that's the sacred name of God. This is, well, the Hebrew doesn't contain the vowel, so we don't know exactly how to pronounce it, but uh, it's, it's Yahweh, most likely. The holy name of God. I, am, I, Yahweh, am the first and the last. I am He. Okay, now let's uh, go to 44, verse 6. Chapter 44, verse 6. Right away, do you see that word again? Do you see the sacred name again? In verse 6, you see that right away? Looking at it. Thus says who? The Lord. The sacred name there. The King of Israel. And His Redeemer. The Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last and there is no God besides me. And who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Sometimes people say, I don't understand the Trinity. I don't understand. How could well, that's good, because you know what? There's only one Trinity. And if you can't understand it, God says, Who is like me? There is nobody else to compare. I mean, you can't say, Well, the Trinity is just like you. No. The Trinity is just like that. Not really. Because God says, who is like me? So if this is a concept that is a little bit stretching, you're getting close. You're getting close. Because you don't want a God like you. You don't want a God made in your own image. Now I see this is a very significant passage for a couple of reasons. First, we're establishing this, I am the first and the last. Who says that? The Lord. L-O-R-D. Yahweh says, I'm the first and the last. You see that? Is that clear? Okay, then you see two people speaking who both claim to be the Lord. But they're two different individuals. You see, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, right? And then you see, and his Redeemer, the Yahweh of hosts. So you've got one person, the Lord, the Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, different individual, the Lord of hosts. Hmm, what could be cooking here? Smells like Trinity to me. It's kind of like this is the Father and this is the Son, doesn't it? Who's the Redeemer? Well, Jesus died for us. He shed his blood for us. He's the Redeemer sent from God. Yahweh, the King of Israel, and the Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, the Yahweh of hosts. There is no God, though singular, like me. See, God says, I'm plurality, but I'm singular. In the beginning, God, Elohim, is a plural word, created the heavens and the earth. But God said, it's a singular. It's a plural name for God, but all the words around it then are singular. Let us make man in our own image. Us. But there's one God. But he is revealing himself in Father, Son, and Spirit in creation. Spirit of God hovering over the waters. Jesus, we understand, Colossians chapter 1, actually said the words of creation. The Father is involved in creation. I mean, it's implicit. Somebody may say, where's the word Trinity in the Bible? The concept of the triunity of God is throughout the Bible. And you can call whatever you want to meet, wherever you meet. You can call it whatever you want. Isaiah 48, verse 12. 
Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel whom I called. I am he. I am what? The first. I am also the last. Surely my hand founded the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. So we know this is the Lord God speaking, right? He says, I am the first. I am the last. Isaiah 48, 12. Who is this again? This is the Lord. This is God Almighty. Amen? You got it? Okay. Revelation 1, verse 8. Well, we're going to go way to the end of the book now. Revelation 1, verse 8. Read it out loud with me, will you? I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So now there's no doubt of about who the first and the last is. He's the Lord God. He's the one who's eternally existed, right? And he's the Almighty One. We've seen him reveal himself in Isaiah 41, Isaiah 44, Isaiah 48. Now Revelation 1, verse 8. We see the ID, complete ID. I need you 
just what you say that you're good and your love is great. I'm broken inside. I give you my life. Give me You're now with Unity in Christ, powered by Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries in Phoenix, Arizona. We want to hear from you. If you have any comments or testimony that you want to share with us, please email it to askhsgm at gmail.com. Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts. You can easily play this week's or past week's program, or even download them on your device in just a few minutes. Search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. following is a program on the Sermon on the Mount. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. My name is Brian Winston. Today, we will be studying the Sermon on the Mount. We often hear that we live in an era when we're flooded with sermons. It's no exaggeration that you can listen to a sermon anytime and anywhere with the explosive growth of the internet. Among all those numerous sermons, do you have a particular pastor you like? I'm guessing you already have a list of favorite teachers, but I'm wondering if there's one particular teacher on your mind as well. The teacher, Jesus. It's absolutely true that Jesus is our Savior and Redeemer. However, He is also an excellent teacher. He delivered the most needed sermons at the right place and at the right time, because he knows us intimately. If we are called Christians, shouldn't we listen to the teachings of Jesus more than any other? The teachings of Jesus found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5 through 7, is called the Sermon on the Mount. It means literally the sermon given on the mountain, and it's also called 
preaching on the mount, or teaching on the mount. Even if you have never heard of the name Sermon on the Mount, when you actually listen to the sermon text, you'll probably remember having heard and read the Sermon on the Mount. In this era, full of sermons, we decided to make this program about the teachings of Jesus. Since today will be the first time studying the Sermon on the Mount, I would like to look at the setting of this sermon, as well as who the targeted audience was, what the contents of this teaching were, and what the objective of this sermon was. It'll be like an outline of the Sermon on the Mount. First, let's read chapter 4, verses 23 through 25, to find out about the setting and the audience. Jesus was going throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demonics, epileptics, paralytics, he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Many people had become followers of Jesus through his example of teaching and healing. However, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain and sat down there. Beginning with Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Some researchers say the audience of Jesus' teachings was actually his disciples and not the crowd. They claim that Jesus went away from his followers and went up on the mountain to meet his disciples. On the other hand, other researchers argue that the target audience was both his disciples and the crowd, quoting the last verses of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. In the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we can see that there were many groups of people that had been following Jesus because his teachings and the miracles that he had performed. However, not all of those that followed him truly believed in him. Many welcomed Jesus when he entered Jerusalem and honored him as their king, but they turned against him after only a few days and became mad crowds shouting, Crucify him! Reading the verse that explains the background settings in the beginning and the end of the Sermon of the Mount, we can tell that Jesus gave his lecture to his disciples, but the crowds had been listening to the sermon as well. The most important matter is that the Sermon on the Mount can't be understood nor practiced unless one is born again through the Holy Spirit. The level and the depth of the Sermon on the Mount are beyond our understanding without the help of the Holy Spirit because it teaches us the standard and righteousness for a member of the kingdom of God. Let's take a look at what some of the contents the Sermon on the Mount covers. First, Matthew chapter 5 to chapter 7 can be roughly divided into four parts. The first part is chapter 5 verses 1 through 16, where Jesus is teaching the Beatitudes and how we are to be both salt and light. The second part is chapter 5, verses 17 through verse 48, where Jesus teaches he is the consummator of the commandments, 
Then Jesus tells us the true meanings of the commandments in the Old Testament by referring to six examples. Those six examples are murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, revenge, and love. Jesus expands on these commandments, for example, by saying that if anyone murders, they are subject to judgment, and also that if anyone is angry with a brother or sister, he will be subject to judgment as well. The third part is Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, through Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, where Jesus is teaching about praying and fasting the right way, how to view wealth, not worrying, and not criticizing. Lastly, the fourth part is chapter 7, verse 13 through verse 29, where Jesus talks about entering through the narrow gate, true and false prophets, and how you will know them by their fruit, and the house built on the rock. Now, don't you have some ideas about what contents constitute the Sermon on the Mount after skimming through some of these points? Lastly, I would like to share the objective of the Sermon on the Mount with you all. Let's go find the verse that helps us to understand why Jesus gave these teachings to us. Matthew chapter 6, verse 8 states, So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. In this verse, by them, He means Gentiles. Right before verse 8, Jesus pointed out how Gentiles used meaningless repetition and told us not to pray like them. So do not be like them. Doesn't it sound pretty familiar? Exodus chapter 23 verse 24 says, You shall not worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds. This was commanded by God to Moses at the mountain. Let's read Leviticus chapter 18 verse 3. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived. Nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. These sermons in Exodus and Leviticus were commands from God to the people of Israel when they were living in the desert after God saved them from slavery in Egypt and before they entered the land of Canaan, the promised land. Notice he told the Israelites to not follow the customs and rules of Egypt nor the statutes of Canaan. In other words, God tells them not to imitate or model Gentile customs or laws. Let's find another verse from Leviticus. In chapter 11, verse 45, it says, For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. The Israelis, who were God's chosen people, had to be holy because God is holy. They were to be different from the Gentiles. Let's get back to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 3 and 4, right before chapter 5 where the Sermon on the Mount begins. The events of Jesus being baptized and tested are recorded. After that, the story of propagating by Jesus comes in chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus proclaimed that the kingdom of God was imminent as it was promised long ago in the Old Testament. Then he shows how the people of God should live through the Sermon on the Mount, teaching us in chapter 5, verses 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Jesus tells us not to follow the Gentiles. It's because the people of God must be holy and distinct from the world as God said in Leviticus. After all, the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is for teaching us righteousness of the inner self and as people that will inherit the kingdom. There is a key point to remember before studying the Sermon on the Mount. We cannot understand the Bible with our own wisdoms and we are not capable of living a life that the Bible tells us to live. Have you tried to do something with your own wisdom and strength and then failed? And haven't you confessed to God as, Dear Lord, I cannot do anything without your mercy. Please help me out right after your failure. That kind of person is called as the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This verse is the beginning of the words of the Sermon of the Mount. Next week, we will be studying the Sermon on the Mount verse by verse. I sincerely hope and pray in Jesus' name that we all live as Jesus taught and we always love and respect the words of God. We hope to see you next time on the Sermon on the Mount.
Livingstone could have continued his life as a promising doctor with comfort and stability. But the reason why he studied medicine wasn't to secure a comfortable and stable lifestyle. He studied medicine to share and preach the gospel. The world looks at a man like him and derides him, mocking him as being reckless and stupid. Even his brother joined in on this. But in the kingdom of God, he was never a reckless or stupid person. Livingstone was instead a valuable worker for God, whose life was used by God to open the door to Africa for the good news to be preached and for the kingdom of God to be manifested in that land. Through Livingstone, a desire for missions to Africa began to grow in London, and it challenged many Christians to imitate Livingstone's devotion and loyalty to share the gospel there. The roads that he pioneered were useful passages for Europeans, including young missionaries that followed after him. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18-19, through 19, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. God gave each of us a ministry. That ministry, like how Jesus Christ reconciled us as sinners to God, is a ministry to reconcile other sinners like us to God by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. For this is why we study, why we pick our professions, and why we should give our lives up to God wherever we are. I hope that all of our listeners live a life worthy of the ministry of reconciliation that we have been called to by God. This now wraps up our Unity in Christ message today. I hope to see you again next week, and God bless. My Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin, I
听。